This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. So the thing is, I would theorize that members of the Abing subculture are most visible in their, their dress and their attitudes and their um, tastes at that age of between 18 to 25 because of the supposed freedom that they have within that age bracket, within that period of time before a person settles down, gets married, gets a full-time job and everything. I don't really believe that the Abing ethos will fade away completely, at least as far as worldview is concerned. Mm-hmm. BFM 89.9, you're listening to Night School. I'm Ahmad Fat Rahmat. Joining us this week is Dr. Rachel Chan Suet K. She is a research fellow at KITA, the Institute of Ethnic Studies at UKM in Bangi. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thank you. So, we are going to talk about your research on Ahbeng subculture. Now, first things first, how did you get interested in this topic? Okay, as a Malaysian Chinese of the non Chinese educated background, I've always been in conversation with friends mm-hmm. and people around me. And I first heard this term abing when I was 16. A friend said that I was drinking coffee like an abing. So I, I wanted But what exactly does that mean yeah, when exactly. you like okay. That was like the first time I heard about that term. Later on of course, you know, uh, friends and and lecturers and other people use the term as well. But but can you just so, describe it as like were you holding the cup a certain way or were you like sitting a certain way or I think I was sitting in a very relaxed way. <laughs> And I was like uh, thoroughly engrossed in my cup of coffee. And we had this coffee in a very traditional coffee shop. Uh. We just finished a kind of treasure hunt in a private college and then we're just chilling out. <laughs> After many, many years of talking to people, I found out that Abing is really a term that's been used to describe a particular subset of culture within the Malaysian Chinese who usually come from the Chinese educated background. Although it's not to say that everyone who is Chinese educated is an Abing. Hmm. It's a subset within a larger mainstream culture. And they've got certain mannerisms that are very reminiscent of um, being Chinese, portraying Chineseness in a very strong way, and also adopting trends from East Asian fashions or music or popular culture in a way that's very loud, that you could recognize from a distance. Hmm. For example, they would listen to techno music. Mm-hmm. Before the era of EDM, you already had Abings blasting out really, really loud music from their stereos in their cars or in their homes or whatever. Or you'd see them color their hair in very, very striking colors, perhaps flaming orange. For a Chinese, that's kind of outstanding. Mm. And it's before the era of what you have ombre and all these kind of hairstyles. Because Abing subculture can be said to have emerged even in the 1980s, 1990s, and uh, possibly before. And the interesting thing is that there are other names associated with this subculture, like Salak South Suzy, wow. Jin Jang Jo, Jin Jang Jil, and there are variants of it. So the origin of Abing subculture is basically uh, you have like the new generation of uh, youth who originally came from the Chinese new villages. Mm. Uh, and of course, if we go back to history, we know the origins of the settlements. Um, It's four settlements by the British colonial powers at that time, uh, where the Chinese were, um, mostly the working class Chinese at that time, were put into these new villages. Right. And it was kind of somewhat insular. 
right, and right. Uh, they were not really um, encouraged to interact with outsiders. So this is a kind of mindset that also you know leaks until today, and you can see how it's also part of the the worldview right. uh, behind the Abing subculture. Right now, doesn't Abing person call himself Abing, or is this really an external designation, or what? All right, so that's one of the topics I'm exploring in my book, in fact. So it's a very good question. So my book is called Abing Subculture and the Anti-Capital or Social Exclusion mm-hmm. because I'm trying to explore whether Abing Subculture is similar to other working-class subcultures around the world yeah. in which usually their definition and their name comes from a kind of mutual reaction between they themselves using that name and the rest of society labeling them as Yeah, such. so like Rumpet, for example, yes. is one example. Yeah. Yes. So what I found is that in my interviews with members of the Abing subculture, they don't usually use the term Abing itself. Mm-hmm. And Abing has origins in Hokkien, a uh, Chinese dialect, which uh, actually refers to bright, bright boy, like a smart boy or mm-hmm. something. But they don't actually call themselves Abing. Now, some of them that are spoken to use names like Lala Jai, mm-hmm. which is a kind of a variant as well. But they wouldn't call themselves Abing. Although they would recognize the attributes of the subculture when described to them. Now, the term Lala that goes around something, is that related to Lala Thai? Well, it could be. Now, the term Lala, when it's used in Malaysia, probably refers to Lala Thai. But then Lala itself could refer to many things because there's also a subculture in China called Lala. Hmm. And it means something totally different. Right. <laughs> but from what I gather, the Abing subculture is a very localized subculture in the sense that it's a reaction of a certain experience of Malaysian Chinese-ness, Right and a marginalized one as well. Now, to what extent is this really a class issue? Because the impression I get is that it's more of a cultural divide. You can really have an upper-middle-class abing, you know, for example, who is quote-unquote well-to-do or, you know, middle-class at least, part of the consumer culture, but it's just not as quote-unquote refined to suit the more cosmopolitan, aspirational, more... you know, centered urban classes, right? So how do you understand class in this sense? All right, okay. That's a very good question because in this book also, I debate about whether we should use the term class to describe the differences between the Abing and also the non-Abing. Mm-hmm. And so what I've done is that noting that in Malaysia, we don't really identify with notions of social class identity mm-hmm. because it's not fixed. We tend not to describe ourselves as coming from the working class or middle class or upper class. So what I've done instead is use a kind of theoretical framework based on Pierre Bourdieu's concept of cultural capital, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. I measure people's ownership of certain beliefs or uh, attitudes or even life experiences in relation to what's mainstream and what isn't. Right, right. So that's why uh, I've used this concept of anti-capital. Now, to actually start off, the concept of cultural capital refers to all the other kinds of experience-based capital that isn't economic capital. Mm -hmm. So it could be our tastes in uh, goods and services, books we read, music we listen to, movies we watch. And so anti-capital here actually is a kind of mirror image or a reverse kind of measurement of the lack of cultural capital. Yeah, yeah. Because cultural capital could be highbrow. And so this is like having a lowbrow version. And therefore, it leads to some kind of um, social mentality whereby the mainstream might think whoever doesn't have cultural capital would not be desirable as a kind of um, rational member of cosmopolitan society. Mm-hmm. So hence the term anti-capital, which is a concept that I'm still developing and I'm trying to operationalize in a kind of survey. Right, right. Interesting. Now, I want to problematize the notion or your use of the term mainstream in that brief description, right? Because I know a lot of non-Abings, I don't know what the term is, but let's just call them non-Abings, sure. who feel marginalized 
by the broader Chinese culture or the emerging Chinese-ness because they felt there's this pressure to speak Chinese well and not only that, uh, to kind of buy into the things they like or to buy into the culture they consume. And they are the ones feeling that they're pressed against the wall because a certain ideal of Chinese-ness is making demands on them. And they feel that our beings are more wedded to that context than to theirs. So what would you say to somebody from that standpoint? All right. So to answer that also, I'll make a sort of differentiation between uh, or rather among the various subsets of Chinese culture in Malaysia. Right, right. Because Malaysian Chinese is always used as a kind of blanket term when actually we have Chinese-educated Malaysian Chinese, non-Chinese-educated Malaysian Chinese and third culture kids and what have you not. So... The thing is that our being subculture comes as a subset of the Chinese-educated Malaysian Chinese. But it's also pertinent to mention that there's this other sort of, uh, in fact, like an opposite to this subculture, uh, what we locals sometimes call banana. Mm-hmm. So that's like the Malaysian Chinese who are yellow on the outside and white on the inside, right, right. so to speak. Not my definition, but it's a popular term. So that means they are sort of westernized. They may not have studied Chinese at all or are not literate, unable to write or read or even speak in Chinese. And therefore, to quote your question just now, they might feel marginalized and feel pressured to participate in this uh, display of Chineseness through language, education, and other customs and cultures. So what happens is that you do really have this sort of perhaps tension or um, kind of internal differentiation within the larger group. And definitely to some extent, uh, members of the so-called banana group find it difficult to interact with members of the Abing subculture yeah. because of the language barrier and the kind of different worldviews, different outlooks on you know what constitutes Chineseness. So Malaysian Chinese in general is a very complex group, and not everyone subscribes to ideas of Chineseness. And then now you have cultural flows from East Asia, including mainland China itself. And the thing is, for example, if you were to observe in a restaurant or in a canteen, you have the Chinese-educated Malaysian Chinese, the English-educated or non-Chinese-educated Malaysian Chinese, and you have students from China. Mm -hmm. They may not all get together in unity. Yeah. So where's the mainstream then? Because your methodology presumes there's a mainstream and there's a subculture. Mm -hmm. And subcultures tend to presume a mainstream, right? So given that complexity... Is there really a center-periphery dynamic? Is there really a mainstream and, and okay. subculture dynamic? So paint a picture of that yeah. interaction. So how I've um, defined this in my book is uh, to say that what is mainstream here is defined by their possession of rational cultural capital. I'm talking here about people who are cosmopolitan, who possess uh, language skills. Mm. They can speak more than just their mother tongue. Right, and they make right. an effort, a conscious effort to learn more different languages. They travel a lot more. They have this worldview where they are interested to explore beyond their immediate horizons. Mm-hmm. And they don't always do something just for money, but out of interest. So in general, what I've done is compare you know, across the different subcultures around the world. And also to note whether all these subcultures are usually originating from the working class. Mm-hmm. So what I've seen is that the mainstream usually is defined as those who have a lot of economic capital. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they can afford to send their kids or themselves to go and learn more languages, to travel more, to equip themselves with more rational skills that are in demand by the global labor market and whatnot. And so the Arbing subculture, because one of its tenets is its worldview, that you do something for survival, for pragmatism, not out of interest. So they become the sort of less desirable 
aspect. For example, if someone's about to to hire one person for a job and you have like two candidates and one of them can speak five languages and has traveled widely and um, does a lot of volunteer work and all these things. And the other person just studies the score on the exam. So the latter would be defined as more towards our being subculture, which is very pragmatic. And the former would be described as cosmopolitan. Yeah, yeah. That's a very interesting way of positioning that, right? Because you're situating it within the cultural demands that are presumed in the market, yes. marketplace. Yes. And in, in a sense where... Uh, like you said, if your experience is in the informal economy and your main language of instruction isn't what the job market wants, then you're sidelined, essentially. Yes. So tell us a little bit about the fieldwork that you did, because you said you did some surveys and interviews, correct? Sure, sure. Thank you. Okay, so I'll refer to my book. Um, now, this book is actually a continuation of my master's thesis, which was um, awarded in 2012 by the University of Malaya. So the original fieldwork is a, actually a mixed method approach. So it combined a few different um, methods like I did a survey with the public and I also interviewed some people who fit the description of what an Arbing is. Also a content analysis of popular publications that chronicle the Arbing subculture like magazines, websites, blogs. And what I've done is try to get a kind of 360 degree view of what the Arbing subculture is all about from the perspective of the Arbings themselves and also from wider society, the so-called mainstream people. But how did you begin the conversation? Like, did you just text somebody? I need, I'm looking for some Arbings. Can you connect <laughs> me to them? I mean, like, because like you said, on one hand, it's there, but on the other hand, it's so informal too. Yeah. Right? It was indeed a problem of definition in the beginning when starting out writing this thesis. So what I did was um, I started out with this now, the thing is, in 2009, there was a profile on what Arbing was all about in the Star newspaper by a writer called Alan Quay, if I'm not mistaken. So this is widely popularized in, in um, newspapers and in movies and everything, usually. So I sort of compiled a list of what constitutes an Arbing and then developed a kind of questionnaire based on um, identifying these attributes and pass it to um, you know a sample that I defined. Uh, what I did was I, I interviewed people in a selected number of public and private universities in um, the Klang Valley, as well as selected shopping malls and public places. So I tried to ask them, based on this survey, and there's got a few options in there, so it's a close-ended survey, what do you define as an Arbing? And so I tried to see what the majority of respondents defined as constituting the look or the, the attributes that identify an Arbing. And then based on this profile that I later on distilled, I went out in search of people in certain shopping malls like Sungai Wang because right. there's always been chronicle as the place where Arbings hang out. Right. And also to some extent, Bajaya Times Square at that time because this was done in like 2010 to 2012. So I went to those places and I, I went and approached these people which I identified as belonging to this description. That's where I found out that they don't call themselves Arbing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like they don't really recognize it when you ask, what do you think of the term Arbing? Obviously, I couldn't ask them, are you an Arbing? That, that would be perhaps you know, <laughs> a little strange. Right. <laughs> so I asked them, what do you think about this concept or this definition? And they couldn't recognize the word itself, but they could agree with, they could identify all the other attributes that were distilled from the public opinion survey of um, for example, do you dress like this? Would you shop at this place? Would you listen to this kind of music? Do you believe that education is very important? Because the other concept, the other worldview that uh, our beings have is that education or intellectual activity is not the foremost 
thing of importance in life. Uh, it's making money and, mm-hmm. and having a good life and perhaps settling down early and, and building a family and things yeah. like that. So I then asked these people what they think of all this. And uh, that's where I found out, um, like, you know, I asked them more questions. Um, if they identified as, as our being, why did you join this uh, subculture? What made you stay? And what was the age group of your samples? Okay, um, because it's primarily a youth thing, the age group was... Now, there were some people who were in the shopping malls and their age was about 15. Right. So that's the youngest. My target was 18 to 25. So I got some like 15 and I got uh, people all the way up to late 20s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, interesting. So let's take a break. I want to probe more on the details of your book. But a wonderful sketch of context and terminology here that I think can help us think through the topic in greater depth and criticality. I, I just learned so much in the past 15 minutes. So thank you for that. But we'll be back for more. This is Night School. We are with Dr. Rachel Chan of uh, UKM and I'm Ahmad Fat Rahmat on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're listening to me, Ahmad Fuad Rahmat. Joining us this week to talk about Ahbeng Subculture is a research fellow from the uh, Institute of Ethnic Studies at UKM, Dr. Rachel Chan Swet K. In the first part of the show, we got a good view of the uh, context, the historical and social context, but of course, the methodology of your research as well, whereby you, you know, in compelling ways, situate this as a subculture. Now, uh, I understand that you've referred to this as largely a youth thing, but you also said that this can be traced from the 1980s onwards. And because it's a pragmatic attitude towards life, I don't see this as a subculture like, say, punk music, for example, where you stop being punk by the time you're 32, you know, because you kind of absorb into life and you just kind of mellow out with adulthood. But because you keep pointing out to the fact that this is a certain worldview, Mm -hmm. right, against the grain, it is defined by survival. The bridge or the gap between this being a youth culture and a broader kind of attitude mm. towards life is much more blurry. So tell me, like, are there our bangs? Can you can we think of our bangs as kind of like being our bangs well into adulthood? Uh, they don't necessarily renounce that worldview, but maybe they just consume less or something. So tell me about the age categorization and okay. you know how you problematize that. Yeah, Right, thank you. So that's very interesting because you raised a point about the punk subculture, yeah. which uh, as you claim, people stop being punks once <laughs> yeah. they're 32. Now, I actually read this quite recently, an article in the Guardian newspaper in the UK about punks. Now, the Guardian sometimes tells readers to submit photos of themselves, you know, in a thematic way. So there was this thematic article about ex-punks, are you still a punk now in your 50s? And they told readers to submit their, their, yes. their photos. And so many of them, including some famous chroniclers of punk subcultures, actually submitted photos at the present day and they still identify as punk. They still dress like that, albeit in a somewhat toned down way. Right, right. Obviously, it's hard to hold a punk mohawk in a person's 50s. So <laughs> yeah, they don't even have hair by that time sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it brings us back to the Abing subculture. And yes, indeed, there could have been members of Abing subculture in the past decades and their look could have also changed uh, slightly according to the decade because of the influence of East Asian fashion. Like how Kanto pop was very popular in the 80s and 90s and then it was taken over by J-pop and then K-pop as we have it now. So the Abings would also move with the times. Now, my scope of definition describes Abing members as being within 18 to 25 or possibly even a little bit younger depending on how early they start displaying themselves and how early they have the financial freedom to do so. So the thing is, I would theorize that members of the Abing subculture are most visible in their, their dress and their attitudes and their um, tastes 
at that age of between 18 to 25 because of the supposed freedom that they have within that age bracket, within that period of time before a person settles down, gets married, gets a full-time job and everything. I don't really believe that the Abing ethos will fade away completely, at least as far as worldview is concerned. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is, um, I've spoke to one respondent who actually joined this brotherhood in his um, in his teenage years during school because he felt that he had some family problems and his friends in school, in this Chinese school, were very supportive of him, but they happened to be Abings. So the interesting thing about this guy is that at some point, his family problems were resolved. And so he was able to move on and go to college and pursue some very, um, what you call, very rational kind of uh, subject that would definitely guarantee him employment, something almost similar to accounting and finance. Mm-hmm. Um, so I asked him, then do you still keep in touch with your friends from the Abing subculture? Now he's got an interesting answer. He says that he still goes out with them he still identifies with their their interests and their point of view, but he's less active in the sense of um, coloring his hair and dressing up like that and listening to music. So it's like he compartmentalizes his life between the rational aspect and also the um, the brotherhood. Right, right. And so I don't think you really ever leave entirely as long as you you have your friends who are on good terms with you, and you may still sympathize with them, but everyone becomes a little bit more. Pragmatic, I suppose, like if you look at um, the psychological definition of age cohorts, like by Erickson, uh, you have different struggles throughout your, your life. And perhaps when you get a bit older, you worry about something else, about your kids, about your job, about your parents. And maybe it isn't that obvious anymore, our ways of displaying ourselves through these uh, physical accoutrements. But we may still believe in those, uh, you know, the ethos behind the right. subculture. right. Did you at any point consider using a different term? Because Abing has so many negative connotations, right? It's oftentimes a pejorative. Uh, and you realize too that the so-called Abings actually don't identify with that term. So what was the thought process as a scholar behind that decision to retain the term Abing? Uh, okay. Uh, well, I also referred to the work of other sociologists in my literature review. And there was this very noted study done by a sociologist in um, Singapore, uh, his name is um, Professor Chua Bing Huat. Mm-hmm. So he also did a very in-depth study of Singaporean Abings of culture. And because he used this term as well, uh. and because it was widely popularized in Malaysian media, uh, you have a movie with a character called Abing. Mm-hmm. You have this newspaper article in the Star calling them Abing. So for the sake of wider identification, I stuck to the term Abing. Uh, but of course, I acknowledge that there are other terms as well, which I also mentioned. Sure, briefly. sure. Can we take a step back and can you give us a big picture of the subcultures that exist out there? Because say Abing is just one out of many, right? right? So what's the lay of the land in terms of Chinese subcultures today? Okay, um, you, you mean in Malaysia? Or? Yeah, in Malaysia. All right. So what I've done is uh, I've also compared the Abing subculture to um, other subcultures that exist within Malaysia and all around the world. The famous ones, of course. Um, now, based on my observation what I can tell you about subcultures in Malaysia. The famous ones that have been chronicled widely in the academic literature are the Mud Rampit, of right. course. Uh, now, there's a lot of studies done on that. And Mud Rock, which was a popular term in the 1970s and 80s, but it's been said to have faded out mm-hmm. as of present. Among Malaysian Chinese, I would say that the two main ones that are known to me are the, the Abing subculture, of course, and the... Um, the banana, mm-hmm. which is, again, it's a term that's... Um, but is banana necessarily a bond, right, in the way that our beings are? 
Like do people bond together given yes, yes, consciously? Yes, oh, okay, yes. go on. Go I've on. done a little bit of a spin-off uh, research on this members of the banana subculture, which again is a term that's mutually created by uh, the non-bananas and right. the people within that group who realize they are being labeled as bananas. Now, sometimes in a situation where you have maybe like a, a school and there are maybe, uh, let's say you talk about a group of Malaysian Chinese and you have the Chinese educated ones or those whose parents speak Chinese at home because they're Chinese educated and you have the bananas and the bananas find it very difficult to actually become close to the uh, Chinese speakers because they can't speak in that same language. So they have this solidarity in the sense that a banana knows one when they see another. Right, right. And they may also be more prone developing greater and deeper friendships with non-Chinese speakers. So they don't really hang out with only Chinese speakers mm -hmm. or only Chinese friends. So that would be the, the general observation of uh, how bananas develop solidarity with others yeah. because of um, language barriers. So they tend to go to whoever can speak the same language as they can. Right. Now you've emphasized the Abeng ethos to be one that's pragmatic, that's about survival. But is there a cultural politics presumed, right? Is this a statement of being Chinese in a Chinese minority country, right? Because they're also vernacular educated as well. So I assume some of that is informing their identity too. How much of it is about a defense of Chineseness or a way of like upholding it? Like, is this conscious or is it more indirect? Tell us a little bit about that. Okay, so what I will say uh, is that my book does not touch about cultural politics or any kind of politics. But what I do find out is that in general, members of the Abing subculture tend not to be politically engaged because as mentioned, they are very pragmatic. So they look at immediate needs and all this. But definitely to some extent, because of the experience of being in a Chinese school, they would tend to display this Chineseness in a much more enthusiastic way as compared to those who have not been to a Chinese school. Depending on which kind of Chinese school you go to, you know, some Chinese schools actually get their books from um, mainland China. Mm -hmm. And then they do have all these parables and, and fables and folk tales from Chinese history. So if you get an Abing who is very, very much into all these kind of folk tales, uh, you may find that they tend to identify with Chinese history, with the language, with the culture, with the customs. But the thing again is that because Abings are primarily not that concerned with intellectual activity, mm -hmm. so it's very unlikely for them to actually want to take a conscious you know, political stand or things like that. So what they're doing really is following consumer trends, in a way that depicts to others that they have succeeded in life. Mm -hmm. They have come out from this new village image of themselves as, as having not much money, uh, not much chance in occupations. In a way, it's for them to show others that why they wear so many branded clothes, that's because they have already made it in life. Mm -hmm. They now have the, uh, they have the material goods, but not necessarily the sophistication in terms of cultural awareness. Yeah. How does this tie into the broader discourse of consumption that's included, say, references in Taiwan or mainland China, you know, especially as more mainland Chinese are coming to Malaysia as well. So does this complicate the Abing subculture? Does it expand it somehow? So tell us a little bit about the connection. Okay, um, it's also a very interesting question. Now, one thing is that uh, Abings tend to idolize East Asian popular culture idols. So it started out with Kanto Pop in the 80s and 90s. And by now they have moved on to idolizing Perhaps a combination of certain 
C-pop stars from mainland China plus K-pop. Because if you analyze, like I've been following up with this on my uh, PhD research and also my subsequent research after that about the convergence of Chinese and Western values as global habitus, which is the title of my uh, PhD thesis. And um, what I've observed is that if you look at a lot of these shows that come out of China nowadays, and you can find a lot of them being broadcast on Malaysian TV as mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. they have a lot of stylistic similarities with K-pop or Korean programs uh, in terms of the you know um, the visuals and the storylines and the kind of popular appeal of having these young and really beautiful or handsome stars. So you get a lot of this, what you call a bit of soft power influence right, right. on the local consumers in, uh, in, in Malaysia. And I don't think it's just limited to Malaysian Chinese. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot of local Malaysians. Now, that also brings us back to the question that you asked just now, subcultures in Malaysia. Now, there's certainly a very large population of Malaysian youth that like Korean popular culture, the K-pop fans and everything. And to some extent, because a lot of these programs that are coming out of China nowadays look kind of similar to this Korean shows. So it's like a whole new wave of influence upon the Abing members, but also to some extent on non-Abings. Mm-hmm. So you have now a combination of Abing subculture being this working class honesty, pragmatism, and uh, maybe anti-intellectualism, but also combined with a desire to look like their favorite idols from China and from Korea. And especially if you look at you know, how these uh, icons depict themselves in terms of style, fashion, Mm -hmm. and selfies on the internet and whatnot, Uh, you can see some kind of effort to look similar Mm -hmm. visually. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this is a very ignorant question, but it seems pertinent since we're discussing subcultures in that subcultures often tend to problematize the norms, right? And I mean this in a legal sense too sometimes, right? Because what they do seems to be so contrary to common sense or what's familiar. To what extent is are being subculture a communal problem? Like, is there a discourse, like, say, equivalent to Mat Rampets, right, where they're seen as being very, how would you say, contrary to developmental ambitions or whatever. So is there something like that? Like, okay, it's interesting that they're doing this, but they're still hardworking anyway, right? So it doesn't seem like it's such of a, a social problem, right? Okay. But to what extent is there a side to it that, that is evoking those concerns? All right. Now, the thing is, in comparison to other working class subcultures, Abing, of course, has also been packed to some kind of economic activity, mm-hmm. which is informal. And if you look at a couple of decades ago, when we still watch DVDs and VCDs, ah, yes, yes. they tended to also be described as VCD sellers or DVD mm-hmm. sellers and things like that, or engage in informal economic activities like maybe working in boutiques. And instead of continuing school, you might find some people who are between 15 to 18 years old Lay parking mm-hmm. or just hanging out around and engaging in this kind of maybe not full-time jobs so that they can have earlier economic um, independence. Right, right. So the thing is, they're not all engaged in illegal activity. Obviously, if they were to sell DVDs or VCDs illegally, then that would be considered as, as a kind of problem, a social problem. But the thing about Abing is that they're concerned with making money in not necessarily a kind of traditional or rational or corporate way. Mm-hmm. So you could find them engaged in these kinds of trade, but they could also be in legitimate businesses. They could be working as hairdressers, right, hairstylists, right. or in, in boutiques uh, where they're actually formally employed. 
So they're not really viewed as a kind of menace to society. You don't find them actually committing violent crime. Although again, with like with any population, you have members, individuals who are prone to crime and those are not. And so it's really just a subset of a, a community that they have freedom in terms of choosing whatever employment they wish to. Right, right. So tell us a little bit about how this has been a personal journey for you too as well. I mean, because, <laughs> I mean, it's a question of Chinese identity or Chineseness, and I'm sure, and typically one does not invest so much time in a PhD research unless it resonates at a personal level as well. So if you don't mind, that is, you know, to what extent has this helped you reflect better about your place in Malaysia or anything okay. to that extent? Yeah. I will talk about three phases of my research. This starts out with my master's thesis, uh, which is now published as a book, Abing's Subculture. And I then continued with my PhD thesis, which is about the convergence of Chinese values and Western values as a kind of global cultural capital or global habitus. And what I'm doing now is actually extending my research into a different area, which is about cultural heritage, focusing on the continued relevance of Cantonese clans in Malaysia and in the region as well as the rest of the world. Now, what I'm looking at here really is to kind of give a more sophisticated account of the subsets and the intra-ethnic relations within the group known as the Malaysian Chinese. Because what I found recently in my research on Cantonese clans is that to go back into history, you find that when the Chinese first migrated over to Malaya, you had all these different dialect groups, the Cantonese, the Hokkien, the Hakka, coming from different parts of mainland China at that time. And they spoke in different dialects and they couldn't even understand mm-hmm. each other sometimes. They didn't have like Mandarin or a kind of uh, lingua franca in between to unite them. So you had certain groups like the Gihin, the Haisan, and they had conflicts with each other sometimes and had the Larut Wars and all these things. And the thing is, it's so complicated and it's so complex to look at how this concept of Malaysian Chinese, which is defined by the British colonial powers at that time, really is comprised of so much diversity. Mm-hmm. And as Stephen Vatovic calls it, you know, super diversity, you have now a situation in the world where what is known as highbrow cultural capital really isn't fixed anymore. It's more like how diverse is your knowledge of other people's languages and customs. And when we transition from this old diversity in the past to the new diversity, we really have to bear in mind that there are so many subsets of cultures even within one particular ethnic group. Yeah. And what constitutes an ethnic group itself is debatable because what is Chineseness? If you get a banana, they don't speak Chinese, they haven't been to a Chinese school. A person who is very, very much into upholding Chinese culture would say, hey, that's not being Chinese enough. So looking at the continued relevance of Cantonese clans or any other kinds of clans, uh, clan associations that is in Malaysia, what is the continued function of this? Do we still need a place that upholds Chineseness? Or should this function be transformed or renewed into something else that talks about engaging people in understanding diversity within the ethnic group and beyond the ethnic group? Should we even still care about this kind of differentiation between ethnicities? Right, right. So what I found about my place in, in the world and all that is that I think identities in general are very malleable. But it really depends on what is the entire goal of you know, uh, becoming a member of any particular community. Like for example, as the respondent that I quoted said, you join the Abing Brotherhood to look for some kind of sense of belonging. And that may be temporary or that may be for a long term. So you become an Abing 
at that point of time, perhaps because you are resisting against some other kinds of forces around you, cultural forces that you can't comprehend or that you don't agree with. Right. But later on, when you get older, you may see things from a different point of view. So then subcultures can always evolve. And um, I think that super diversity is a very important conceptual or theoretical framework for us to view the world right now. And um, what I found is that I've learned so much more from uh, these three phases of my research. Yeah. And I think uh, there's something about how culture is so organic. I know it's a very, you know, it's a very common sensical thing to say, but it's hard to really appreciate that sometimes, you know, because we like these labels and, and we get complacent with them when new identities are being formed all the time. And we only encounter them when they're already, like, in a way, it's already too late because they're already dominant or they're already like visible, right? But the process of how these identities come to fruition or the negotiations that take place along the way is really fascinating. And I think your contribution to the discussion is, is really valuable and I hope people pick it up, you know. Any concluding thoughts for our listeners, you know, as they think more through this question of uh, bangness? I mean, personally for me, I mean, it's just shed so much light on a term, like you say, is often abused or misunderstood or often ridiculed too, right? But now I see this as a real cultural statement. Yeah, a political one too. <laughs> okay, um, well, my book is published by the National Institute of Ethnic Studies, so KITA and UKM. Uh, although the views expressed are purely my own and does not represent KITA, it's sold for 15 ringgit in KITA. Uh, well, I hope more people pick it up as a sort of informative case study into this particular subculture that existed in this particular spatial and temporal situation. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that it stops there because there are new subcultures coming up every day. Now, in this book itself, I mentioned, I cite the work of some journalists and websites because there hasn't been an academic study mm -hmm. as yet of new subcultures that may be emerging, like ravers or hipsters. And they're not all marginalized because right. hipsters, now they also tend to be non-mainstream, but sometimes their activities could stretch into rather expensive ones. Yeah. Like you talk about avocado toast and why millennials can't afford to buy a house and stuff like that. And then you get into all this hipster activity where they hang out in cafes, they have got their own aesthetic, and it's not always cheap. So I think that subcultures, when you talk about the mainstream, the mainstream values could always change. People nowadays are becoming more woke, so to speak, if you talk about um, sure. the North Atlantic uh, hemisphere, of course. And when you have this new configuration of what is cosmopolitan, then what becomes non-mainstream also changes in relation to it. And so I have a Venn diagram inside this book mm -hmm. talking about how the, the relations are between the mainstream and the non-mainstream. So what I have here is a Venn diagram of a square, which is the mainstream society. And I have a larger circle inside. It's highbrow cultural capital, which is what mainstream society idolizes. And you have another isolated circle at the corner, which is the Abing subculture, which possesses anti-capital. Mm -hmm. And so I'm still in the process of developing a better measurement tool, which most probably will be a survey questionnaire as to how to diagnose one's possession of anti-capital. Fascinating stuff. Thanks so much, uh, Rachel. Again, uh, we'll post the link to the book on our website for those who are curious to look it up. Do email the show to bfmnightschool.gmail.com or look us up on Facebook. Just type uh, Night School in search space. Download our app as well. Google Play and App Store will have them. Now, 
we can also Google you. Our listeners can Google your name on Google Scholar, perhaps, to find out more about your work. But I've thanks a, again. I've got a website on Kita. Okay, uh, I've got cool. a CV there, so I can send that link to you. All right, awesome. <laughs> right, yeah. Cool. Well, well okay. thanks again. And we hope to have you on the show uh, in the future. So, I'm Ahmad Fahad Rahmat, and this is Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.